you would turn with me to the third chapter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which for Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We have guests with us from so many congregations here in town and elsewhere, people from Andrews, other places. We are delighted. We thank the Lord for your presence and guarantee you this, you're going to be blessed tonight. And here at Westside, we have already been blessed by your presence. Thank you so very much. Hiram Kemp's going to serve up what God cooked up, and there's going to be no doubt about it. Now you look at Hiram, I know he looks young. He's 32 years old, and he's only been a Christian for about 12 years. But Hiram Kemp preaches like he's been preaching for 25 years and is a veteran. Pressing toward the goal. Wait just a second. (laughs) Hiram didn't come here to, to push his books. But he and another dear brother just published a book in the last week in print. And it is called Last Will and Testament. And it is a survey of the books of the New Testament. I called the publisher and asked what kind of deal could we get on some of these. Hiram didn't come to push his books, so I'm going to push them for you. It's a very fine help introducing each of the books of the New Testament. And the brother, Paul Sane, a name that might be familiar to a number of you, published this book. He's been here to Westside before, and he gave us a very generous price. This price is almost ten bucks, but you know what happened? He was willing to give us a very generous offer. And as I mentioned this to somebody, it got even better. An anonymous donor said, please pick up a hundred copies and make sure that people who want a copy at Westside and our guest can get a copy for free. He's only been here one day. (laughs) And he's getting that type of response. And it's because he's going to serve up what God cooked up. Hiram, it's all yours, brother. Good evening. 
good to be here tonight. As has already been said, we appreciate the presence of everyone who's come out tonight, those that are members here at Westside and those from visiting congregations. We are glad that you've made an effort and you made it a priority to be here among us tonight. We've appreciated the worship we've engaged in so far, the songs that we've sung, the prayers that have been prayed. And um, I just decided just now I'm going to take Mike everywhere with me to push the books. And so that's just what, that's how to be from here on out. But no, we really are glad that you're here tonight. One of the challenges that you and I face as we study the books of the New Testament, as we study the word of God, is that we are far removed from when the events that we read about in Scripture took place. We know that and we try to get behind the background and study the cultural context and all of those things. But the reality of it is it's just one of our disadvantages. It's one of our struggles. And as a result of that, it may be tempting for you and for me as we read the New Testament to assume that when we read about the faithfulness and the vigor and the sacrifice of individuals throughout the pages of the New Testament, it's tempting for us to just assume, well, of course they did. Of course they read the Bible and studied and were willing to die for their faith because after all, they lived way back there in the first century. They had nothing else better to do. Of course, they were as faithful as they were. But the reality is, That in any age, when we know of the faithfulness and the sacrifice and the diligence of any of God's people, it has always come to them at a sacrifice and at a high price. And that's still true tonight. In the first century, they had distractions just like we do today, though theirs were not as battery powered or as colorful. They had the same things. They had entertainment and there were problems in the churches And they had various things of religious ideas to compete with in the first century. They had the very same struggles that you and I face today. And yet many of them that we read about were able to overcome. We should appreciate that and see from that that what they were able to do, they didn't do it because it came easy to them, but because they made a priority. They paid the price and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put our faith where it belongs. And that is in the highest place. And we're going to give our all to it. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Philippians chapter three. What we have in Philippians three is Paul writing to a church that he calls his joy and his crown. He mentions in Philippians three and verse one that it's his goal to warn them about these false teachers. And he says it's not burdensome or grievous for him to do this. In fact, it's his joy to do so. In verse two, he mentions dogs and workers of the concision. And then in verse three, he reminds them that we are the circumcision. We are the true people of God that worship God in the spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's points to his point to his readers in the book of Philippians is this. You really are the people that belong to God and you have aligned yourself with the right group of people in Jesus Christ. And now you must press toward the goal. I don't have a copy of everybody's schedule that's here tonight printed out, but chances are that your life is like most people's lives in the 21st century in America. You're pretty busy. There are a lot of things that are vying for your attention, a lot of things vying for your affection, a lot of things in the world and in our society that are saying, hey, pick me first. I'm what's most important. And with those opportunities come promises that if you put all of your stock here, whether it's whatever school or job or career or family or entertainment, there are promises that say your life will be fulfilled. You'll be happy. Just give me a little bit more time. You'll reach your goals. And what I want to say to you from Philippians chapter three tonight is there's nothing wrong with other pursuits that God has blessed us with. But there is one pursuit that demands our constant attention above all of the others. And it's to that pursuit that we must continuously press toward the goal. We've sung a lot about heaven this evening and about this idea of the hilltops of glory and about glory land. 
But that will only be our reality to the degree that what Paul says in Philippians 3 becomes our reality as well. Paul not only sets an example for us on how to press toward the goal, but he outlines in Philippians 3, 12 through 21, how that is done. Not as though I have already attained, either are already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend or lay hold of that which is laid hold of me in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth to the things which are before I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many of us be perfect or mature, be thus minded. And if anything you be any otherwise minded, God will reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same things. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which so walk as you have me for an example. For many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping as the enemies of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their bellies, their glory and their shame. And Paul says they mind earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our conversation is in heaven. From where also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body that it might be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able to subdue all things to himself. Five things from this text in Philippians chapter three. And it is exactly what Mike said. This is what God has cooked up for us in Philippians chapter three to help us press toward the goal. Number one, Paul says that if we're going to do this, we need to realize we have not arrived. The Philippians remember Paul and they know him well as the founder of the Philippian congregation. See Acts chapter 16 as Paul goes there with Silas and with Timothy and he preaches, he converts Lydia and then the Philippian jailer. They may very well view Paul as a sort of theological giant, as a giant in the faith. But Paul reminds them right away in verse 12, not as as if I've already attained or I haven't already laid hold of it. Paul is saying to these Christians, he's saying to you and me, he has not arrived at perfection. Now, there's a play on words in verse 12. He says he's been laid hold of of Jesus Christ or Jesus has held on to Paul. He's apprehended Paul. But Paul says at the very same time, he is also laid hold of Jesus Christ It's sort of a Jacob type metaphor. That is, he won't let go of Jesus until he receives what he ultimately wants. And he mentions that in verses 10 and 11. He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and to be made like Jesus in his suffering. But what Paul says is. He's come a long way, but he hasn't arrived. Few people came as far as Paul came as quickly as he did. Right after his conversion, Acts 9 and verse 20, he was preaching the gospel in Damascus. He testified about himself in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10 that he had labored more abundantly than all of the other apostles. And yet there's this startling admission in verse 12. Paul says, guess what? For all that I've done, he wrote over half of the New Testament. He says, I'm not there yet. And if you and I are going to press toward the goal successfully, it's to that same degree that we must admit we haven't arrived. We're not perfect. We're not where God wants us to be just yet, but we are striving or pressing toward that goal. We have not arrived. There's still work for us to do. Throughout the book of Philippians, there's this tension that goes on throughout the book. And that is, on the one hand, Paul wants to emphasize, look, God's still working on you. God's still working in us. And then on the other side of that, Paul will say things like, now you've got to do your part. Notice these. Look at Philippians chapter one, Philippians chapter one. And in verse six, Paul says, now this is God's part. He that has begun a good work in you will fulfill it or complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. That's God's part. God's going to work on us. God's going to work in us. But notice our part. Philippians one and verse nine. 
He says, I want you to continue to abound in love more and more. God's doing some work. But Philippians, you've got to do your part. Look at Philippians chapter two and Philippians chapter two and verse 13. He says, here's God's part. He that began a good work in you will complete it. God's going to do his work. It's his will to work in you for his will and his good pleasure. But notice our part in verse 12. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians, God's not through with you and you can't be through with him. There's work to do. There are things yet to be accomplished. And we will be God's people to the degree and press toward the goal as we appreciate that we have not arrived. We need to appreciate this as we teach people the gospel, that it's great to be immersed in Christ, to be in baptized into Jesus, to have your sins washed away. But baptism is far from the end. It's merely the beginning. There remains a rest for the people of God, Hebrews 4 and verse 9. And we're entering into that rest as we press toward the goal. But we haven't arrived just yet. There's still work for us to do. And for those of us in Christ, we should appreciate that one of the dangers of patting ourselves on the back prematurely is to forget that we need both hands engaged and ready as we're in the fight for our eternal lives. Paul says, I have not already arrived. I'm still pressing toward the goal. And if we forget that, we may let up too soon. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Paul says, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't forget this principle that as long as we're on this time side of life, there's things that God wants us to do. And one of Aesop's famous fables, you may be familiar with this from your childhood days. There's the story of the tortoise and the hare. You remember that story and how it goes. The way the story is set up is there's the constant mocking and ridicule of the hare toward the tortoise for his slowness. And then one day the the race is set. And as you remember, or you might be familiar with, the race goes on and the hare jumps out so far in front that he just takes a rest and takes a nap and awakens to his surprise as the tortoise is screeching across the finish line ahead of him. And that parable or that story has often been told to suggest that slow and steady wins the race. But it also tells us one more thing, that sleepy and satisfied loses the race. And in our faith, if we think, well, I've done so much, I've done so much good, I'm so far out in front. And we forget this, this reality that we haven't yet arrived. We'll fall short of the heavenly goal. Think in the Bible about all of the people who almost made it. Moses led God's people for 40 years and he was almost at Canaan. He was almost there. Numbers 20 says that when he struck the rock after God had told him to speak to it, he was stopped short of the goal. At least on this time side, God forgave Moses, no doubt. He's in glory, Matthew 17, but he didn't make it to Canaan during his earthly pilgrimage. And he got this close. And Samson was just sure that God's power and strength would always be with him until one day it wasn't. Judges 16 and verse 20. He was close. And the five foolish virgins, they thought that they had enough oil. They had just enough or at least they thought until it had run out and they didn't have enough. And Peter almost walked on water in Matthew 14 until he saw the wind and the rain and the storms. And then he sank. There's this sobering reality that confronts us in Scripture, that what we all want to eventually hear is well done, good and faithful servant. But we must do well until we hear well done. We are to live our lives continually to the glory of God. And then in the end and only in the end will we go to glory with God. But we are still a work in progress. Every one of us, none of us have arrived. None of us can say I'm all that God wants me to be. And as we strive to press toward the goal, we need to continue to evaluate where we stand and say, you know what? I want to do all that God would have me to do with the gifts that I have, and I won't stop short of the goal. 
Sometimes jobs have this continuing education where if you're going to work at this company, you've got to continue to train. You've got to continue to stay fresh and you may have to go to different seminars and classes and training. And you might say, I've been at this job 30 years. I know everything about this job. Why do they have those sorts of things? You know why they have them. It's because they want you to improve. They want you to stay fresh. They want you to stay on top of things. They don't want you to rest on your laurels because it could be the upending of their company and ultimately your work as a performer. And Jesus says, I'm going to continue to equip you. I'm going to work in and with you. But you've got to appreciate that you haven't yet arrived. The New Testament often tells Christians, hold fast to your profession. Hebrews chapter three and verse six. Jesus told the church at Thyatira, hold fast that which you've had at the beginning until I come again. Revelation 225. And he said the same thing to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation three and verse 11. The point is what Paul is mentioning here. We haven't yet arrived, but we're on our way. Here's number two. Forget the past. If we're going to press toward the goal, we need this idea of forgetting the past to be a part of who we are. Notice verse 13. Paul says, I have not already attained, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind. Now, if you're reading this letter and you know who the Apostle Paul is, you would say about his life. He had a lot of things to forget. And there may be some things that weren't so easy to forget. Notice Philippians chapter three, verses four through eight. And some of the things that Paul said he readily surrendered in order to be the Christian that he was. Philippians three, four through eight. Paul talks about his pedigree as a Jewish man and all of the things that were his in Judaism. He says, if anyone on earth has anything to boast about in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If there was any righteousness in the law, Paul says, I was blameless concerning zeal. I persecuted the church Pharisee of the Pharisees. But notice verse eight, all of those things that were gained to him in Judaism. Paul says, I count them as lost. He threw them on the trash heap so that he might win Christ. Here's a question for us tonight. What's on your trash heap? Is there anything that we could say that we used to look to to define ourselves as being of worth and of importance? And we say in Christ, Paul said, I threw all of those things on the trash heap so that I might win Christ. But not only the good things of Judaism, Paul had some other things that were worth forgetting in his past. Surely he wanted to forget his persecuting of the church. Galatians one and verse 13. And the stoning of Stephen, no doubt, was something that he would want to put behind him. Acts seven and verse fifty eight. Paul knew that there was nothing that he could do to fix the things that he had done in the past. And so he did the only wise thing that he could do. He forgot it. If we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, if we're going to press toward the goal, it's to the degree that you and I say, you know what? I'm just going to forget the past. There are many of God's children tonight throughout the world who would be of such such great value and effectiveness in the kingdom of God. If they could just forget things that God has long forgiven. Sometimes that's the hardest part, isn't it? You say, well, I've done some terrible things and you don't know the things I've done. And it's just so hard. And I realize that we're not God. And it's impossible for us to totally wipe our memories clean of all of the things that we've thought and done and said or maybe haven't done. But the New Testament demands that we try. In first Corinthians six, verses nine and ten. It's a shame that we know verses nine and ten better than we know verse eleven. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, no, you're not. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives that sin list. 
adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals and drunkards and idolaters. But then in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And by the spirit of our God, God has forgiven it. God has washed it away and it's going to hinder your progress and mine. If we keep digging up the things that God has said, those things are in the past. Leave those things where they are. Forget those things which are behind because they'll weigh you down as you try to press toward the things which are before. We can learn from the past, but we can't live there. Paul says, forgetting the things which are behind. There are things that you've done that you just can't forgive yourself of or you won't forgive yourself of. And God is saying, hey, you've given those things to me and I've thrown them away in the sea of forgetfulness and forgiveness. Now press toward the goal and get busy doing the things that I want you to do. But it's not just the bad things that need to be forgotten. There are some of the good things that you and I have done that if we're going to be God's people today, we need to also forget. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul practices a sort of willful amnesia concerning even the good things that he had done. He says, I baptized some individuals from the house of Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus. But besides that, I don't know who else I baptized. Now, Paul's point is this. He didn't keep a ledger of all of the good things that he had ever done, because if he did, he would forget about all of the people that still needed to hear the gospel message. Sometimes there are people in God's kingdom who used to teach Bible class every quarter. And they used to evangelize. And they used to be willing to serve and do all of these great things. But you know what? Those things are in the past. And if we try to be justified by how faithful we once were a long time ago, we're going to be disappointed in the day of judgment. There are things that God wants us to do at this very moment. And we should focus our attention on those things. Don't let the negativity of the past hold you back, but neither rest on the great things that you did years ago. What God is often concerned with in your life and mine is what are we doing today? In Ezekiel 18, this is basically God's message to the people. He says, if you were once righteous and now you're wicked, I'll forget the the righteousness that you practiced in yesteryear. And I'm going to hold you accountable today for the wickedness that is your current practice. And if you were once wicked and ungodly and you've repented of those things, he says in Ezekiel 18, 24 to 28, those things are forgiven. And I'll look at you in the light in which you currently stand. To press toward the goal is to say, The things that are behind me, that's right where I will leave those things. And I'm going to be God's person in the here and in the now. If you were once on the sidelines and now you're in the fight with Jesus Christ, forget the past and press toward the goal. If you were once faithful, but you're now sluggish, forget the past. Think about repentance today and say, you know what? I'm going to give more of my time and energy and effort toward the kingdom today and press toward the goal. You say, I didn't grow up in the kingdom. I didn't grow up in the church. And I have a reckless past of ungodly living and unrighteousness. And sometimes, if I'm honest, it just haunts me. And I don't feel worthy to be in God's kingdom. Well, join the club. But leave those things in the past. Paul says, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before. His statement here is an allusion to the Grecian races as an individual would be in competition. And as they're running this race, just think about how one's progress would be impeded if you were trying to run a race while constantly looking backwards at who may be coming up on you in that very moment. You're slowing yourself down on the thing that you ultimately want to accomplish, and that is to make headway before you. And we can't live the Christian life that way. His mercies are new every morning, and so the failings of yesterday need to be forgotten. 
Discipleship is a daily endeavor. And so the things that we've done for God that are great, they're written on his record in heaven. But for us, we need to take up our cross daily, Luke 9, 23, and follow him. Paul says, I forgot the things which are behind in order to press toward the things which are before. Now, here's number three. Keep a singular focus. This may very well be where Paul stands out above everybody else we read about in the New Testament. His ability to zero in on the goal ahead of him and focus on that above everything else is what sets him apart as a stalwart, faithful servant of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6 and verse 14, Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, save or accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world is crucified to me. And I unto the world. Paul was able to say, I'm closed off to everything else in comparison to my faithfulness and my devotion to Jesus Christ. Circle it, underline it. Notice what he says in the text. This one thing I do of all the things that Paul could do in the world. He says, this is the one thing that I'm focused on. That I might know him and that I might press toward the goal of the upward call, which is in Christ Jesus. Sometimes people say, well, preacher, I tried that. You know, I was a faithful Christian. I gave it everything that I had. I poured my all into Christianity and it really didn't pay off. But the reality is people that have said that haven't really poured their all into Christianity. G.K. Chesterton was right when he says Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. People say, I'm going to give my all to Jesus Christ, but this is hard. This is taxing. This is difficult. And then we sort of back away. But Paul says, no, press in more. And give it everything you have because it's worth it. Jesus says, choose the difficult way and the narrow way, because in that you find life. Matthew 7 and verse 14. This is the most important thing we can endeavor to do, and that is to honor, to glorify and to please God. And we need to give our all to it. This one thing I do, Paul said, and that was to ultimately please his God. He was crucified to the world, crucified the flesh so that he might glorify God in the spirit. People that know you best, what would they say if you were to say this one thing I do? What would people that know you best say your one thing is? Because here's the reality. Every one of us can say this statement that Paul says, this one thing I do. Now, maybe our blank isn't filled in like Paul's, but every one of us, everybody in the world has a this one thing they do. Everybody has one thing that above everything else in the world is their passion. And here's the tricky part about this, especially for Christians. It's often not what we think it is or maybe not what we wish it would be. There's something we can do about that. But first, we have to be open and honest as we evaluate. Where am I really putting my priorities? Where am I really putting the emphasis? Here are five questions that we can ask ourselves to be sure. What is my one thing? Maybe I don't know. Maybe I think it's Christianity and it's not. Or maybe I think it's something else. And it is here are five questions about life passion that will help you to figure out just what your one thing is. Here they are. Number one. What do I study and know a lot about? That's probably an indication of what your one thing is. Paul says study to show yourself approved to young Timothy or give every effort to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What do I study and know a lot about? What am I really interested in learning about? Just naturally, I want to dig into that. That's probably an indication of what my one thing is. Number two, what do I spend a lot of time doing? What gets a lot of my time? Paul said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual service. Romans 12 and verse one, where we spend a lot of time. That's probably going to be an indication of what our one thing is. What's our passion? 
Number three, what do I sacrifice my resources for? When Paul was writing to the churches in Achaia, the churches in Corinth, he's talking to them about the contribution that they're supposed to be making for the folks in Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he speaks at length about a promise that they made over a year ago and how he wanted them to come through on what they had promised. But in 2 Corinthians 8, 24, he says, show to the churches the proof of your love. Paul says, prove it that you love them. How? Well, one of the barometers of that was what were they going to do about financial contribution? Number four, what do I speak up and talk a lot about? Some people are finding out right this moment as we're going through this list. Wow, my passion is college football, you know, Alabama or Georgia or somebody, right? Or maybe my my passion is hunting and fishing. We're finding out right now because this list is saying something about where are my energy? Where's my resources? What do I just naturally like to talk about? Paul says we believe and therefore we speak. Second Corinthians 413 evangelism is not something that the early Christians were guilted into doing. It was just the natural outflow of lives that had been impacted and transformed by Jesus. They just couldn't help but talk about it. And that's what they did. And then number five, what do I stand up for when it's criticized? Philippians 117, Paul says, know this, that I am set for the defense of the gospel. It has to be us. We can do that in love. In fact, we must speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. But do we stand up for Jesus Christ and things of righteousness and things of the faith? Because Paul was able to check off all of these boxes and in every one of the blanks for Paul, you know what the answer was. Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that's not because Paul was an apostle. It's just because Jesus had died for him just like, like he died for me and you. What is your one thing that you do? Because as we press toward the goal, no matter what else we put in the blank, in the end, there's only one right answer for every one of those questions. And there's only one thing that's going to matter in the end. But here's the thing. In the day of judgment, it's not as if there's going to be some great reversal and all of the things that people have emphasized will immediately become insignificant and eternal spiritual things will rise to the top. The reality is it's always been that way. But as we make our earthly pilgrimage, it's just sometimes difficult for us to see and appreciate it. And so Paul's writing to the Philippians and he's holding himself out as an example. And he's saying, I've got my focus right. This one thing I do, there's this laser vision in the mind of Paul. And he's saying to the Philippians, come along with me and press toward the goal. Here's number four. Follow good examples. If you want to press toward the goal, latch on to other people who are doing the same thing. Paul said this about himself, but he could say it about others. Be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Brethren, be followers together of me, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. This was Paul's constant plea, but not only for himself. In Philippians 3, 16 and 17, he says, where we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule and mind the same things. Brethren, be followers together of me and then find other people doing the same thing and follow them as an example. Throughout the book of Philippians, if you go back and notice in Philippians chapter two, Paul mentions people like young Timothy. And he says, hey, Timothy is an example. In fact, Timothy is such an example. Philippians two, 20 through 22. Paul says, I have nobody else. I have nobody else like him. He mentions a man by the name of Epaphroditus, Philippians two, 25 through 29. He says this man almost died so that he could bring a contribution that you had made for me to me. Find men like Epaphroditus and be like him. 
The New Testament says a lot about marking false teachers. You make sure you find people that are teaching things contrary to the gospel and you note those people. And after warning them, you just have nothing to do with them. There's something to do with people like that. But the New Testament also says you find people that are doing the right thing and you mark those people, too. And then you say, I want to be like them. Now, Jesus is our ultimate example, but he's left us some mighty signposts along the way. Paul is saying there's a right way to do Christianity and there's a wrong way. You find people doing it the right way and then you walk in step with them as long as they're in step with Jesus. Notice the text and look at verse 18 and verse 19. He's saying these are people that are doing it the wrong way. Don't be like them. I've warned you about them and now I'm crying as I'm doing so. They're bad examples. They're in this destruction. Their God is their bellies. They glory and shame. They mind earthly things. Don't be like them. Be like the people in verse 16 and 17 who are going to help you get to the right place. These are the right kind of examples. Hebrews 11 has a list of individuals who have walked by faith. And the point of mentioning those folks is not because they lived in a world far removed from us and they did things we could never do. God has preserved their record to say to you and me tonight, you can and must do the same thing. The list is probably maybe you could think of more, but I think of three ways in which God works in your life and in mine in the current. God works in our life through the passages in this book. He does. As you read these passages and by faith, you apply the teachings thereof. God works in our life in a mighty way. God works through his providence. I can't explain how all of that always works. I hope your God still surprises you. I hope you haven't got them all the way figured out. Paul says he's able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or even think. And so there are some things you haven't thought about. God works through his providence in amazing ways. But then in the third place, his passages, his providence, And then God works in our lives marvelously through his people. It's not just in the Bible that we find examples. You just look around this auditorium and you know the stories of members of the congregation where you serve far better than I do. And this is how God has set it up. It's supposed to work this way. When you see people who have lost their spouses, who have lost children prematurely, who have battered cancer and depression and anxiety and hardship and loss, and they press through and they've been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years. Our response to those circumstances must not be, I don't know how they ever did a thing like that. And if it were me, I just couldn't get through. Our response is supposed to be. Now, those folks are strong, but they don't have any more of the love of God than I have. Jesus didn't shed any more blood for them than he did for me. And I'm glad that they're here as a signpost and as an example, because if they made it through, well, then there's hope for me. We're supposed to grow and learn from each other. It is true that every one of us will give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give account of how we have lived. Second Corinthians five and verse 10. But passages like Philippians three, 16 and 17 say to us, Christianity was never meant to be a solo endeavor. Two are still better than one. They have a great reward for their labor. Ecclesiastes four, nine through 12. We're to run the Christian race, but we're to run it together as we help one another to reach the eternal goal. If you would press toward the goal. You're going to find people that you say, you know what, this person, they're an example. This person is showing me what it's really like to follow Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a Bible full of examples of Peter and Paul and Silas and Timothy and Epaphroditus and Phoebe and Lydia. But then there are people that we know right now in the flesh who we can look at them and say, you know what, because of her age and her health, she's not able to do what she once did. But look at her presence. She's been a faithful Christian for 40 years. And I want to age well in the Lord like that. I want to be like them. What a faithful example. 
They've been married for a long time. They've gone through a lot of hurdles and ups and downs, but they have stuck it out together in Christ. And I want to be like them. And they didn't do everything right and they weren't perfect. But look at how they were able to raise their kids and sow the seeds of the gospel. I want to be like people like that. See, pressing toward the goal is about saying, I want to press toward the goal and do what I can. But then Paul says, you mark people that are doing the right thing and you follow in their footsteps. Now, here's the fifth and final thing tonight. Focus on the goal. In contrast to the people that he mentions in verses 18 and 19 who mind earthly things, Paul says in verse 20, our conversation, that's the old King James, our citizenship is in heaven and from heaven. We look for our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to change us. Now, Paul's writing to people who would readily get this, this word conversation, this word citizenship. They would drink deeply from this idea because they were in a Roman colony in Philippi. Philippi was not Rome. But it was as close as you could get without actually going. If you went to Philippi in the first century, they had a Roman government. They spoke Latin. They had Roman garb and clothes. It was a mini Rome. That's what it meant to be a Roman colony. And they were Roman citizens and they were pretty proud of it. And so when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, he's saying to people, listen, the most important thing about you is not your Roman citizenship. You know how this works. You know that you don't have to be in a place to be from that place. And Paul's saying, listen. You're not in heaven yet, but your citizenship is there. You speak the heavenly language of love, though you're not there. You're a part of the heavenly kingdom of Jesus Christ, though you're not there yet. You have heavenly leadership and a king that reigns supreme. Your citizenship, where you're really from, it's not Texas or Florida or Kentucky. Your ultimate heavenly home is heaven itself. And you should start acting like it. Paul says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Our inheritance is laid up in heaven. It's incorruptible, undefiled, and it does not fade away. It's reserved beyond the clouds, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Our focus needs to be on eternal and heavenly things, and we press toward the goal when we remember that reality. Albert Brumley wrote that song in 1937. This world is not my home. You know the rest of that. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. But the world tries to change that every day and say, you know what? You are here to stay. Put down stakes. Get comfortable. And it's only by assembling with the saints, studying the word of God and walking by faith that we continue to remind ourselves that this earth is merely a pit stop and not a final destination. Paul says in verse 20, there's going to be something great that happens. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, notice verse 21. He's going to change our bodies. We don't give enough credence to that. I guess somebody told me once I was preaching on this and they said, well, I appreciate that more than you because I'm older than you and I'm about ready to get rid of this body. And maybe that's right. But we need to appreciate for the early Christians that this was the goal, the resurrection body. They knew nothing about an aimless life on the clouds. The goal for the early Christians was to get what Jesus received at his resurrection. And that's what Paul says his goal is. He not only says it in verse 21, he says it in verse 10 and verse 11 as well, that he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And here's the great reality for people of God. One day when Jesus comes back again, yes, we're going to be in heaven with God, but we're going to be in heaven with God with a brand new body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this body is sown in corruption. It is raised incorruptible. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. Flesh and blood as it presently exists cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But God is going to work wonders on your body and mine, just like he did on Jesus. First John chapter three says we don't know what that's like yet, but we know that when we when we see him, we'll see him as he is. People have said it's been a great idea to work for Google. I don't know everything about the company, but some of their benefits are remarkable. If you work for Google, they have on-site free haircuts, gourmet lunches, high-tech cleansing toilets, and on-site doctors. But in a recent Forbes magazine, they have one of their greatest benefits of all that is now advertising. It is this. If you are an employee at Google and you die while working for them, your spouse receives up to 50 percent of your salary for the next decade. More than that, there are no tenure requirements on this. And so 114,000 of Google's employees, most of them qualify. If you work for Google and you die, you get good benefits. Paul says if you work for Jesus Christ and you die, you get a glorious body. He'll change your body. That's what he promises in verse 21. And it'll be fashioned like his glorious body. And he's able to do it because of the power that he possesses. And he works all things to himself. It's going to be great. Paul's point is really it's going to be marvelous. There's not just going to be something glorious that happens before us when Jesus returns. Romans 8 and verse 18 says something glorious and great is going to happen in us. And the only way that can be our reality is if we press toward the goal. Paul was a spiritual giant in his generation, but it wasn't because of Paul. And everybody who you've ever known and loved who has been a faithful and dedicated Christian, if they've done it right, they can claim no power in themselves, but it is something far outside of themselves. That's the motivation. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. As long as we are in this flesh and blood, we haven't arrived. We must continuously press toward the goal. We must remind others that Christianity begins at baptism, but it ends at the resurrection. Looking toward the goal, focus singularly on this one thing as we run the spiritual race of Christianity together, encouraging one another along the way. But maybe tonight somebody wants to begin that race. You've been studying what the New Testament says you must do to be saved, to believe on Jesus as the Christ, to repent of your sins. And based on your confession of him as Lord, to be immersed in water, to have your sins washed away, he'll add you to the kingdom. And so to speak, he'll put you at the starting blocks and you can run the race set before you with patience. And you won't have to run along because you will be surrounded by people that love you and are running in the same direction. If we can help you tonight, if you need to be restored, if you need the prayers of the people of God, as you are just struggling to press on, every one of us gets to that point on occasion. The elders of this congregation would be happy to receive you, to pray with you, and to pray for you as we press toward the goal together. If this is your invitation, come now as together we stand and as we sing.